Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. Thank you for joining us for worship here at the Vista. Um, We are in the middle of a summer series called Living the Dream. We are looking at the life of this Old Testament uh, guy named Joseph. And so today we're going to be continuing in that series. We're going to be trying to look at two chapters, Genesis chapter 43 and chapter 44. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all two chapters to you. But we do have a lot to cover and a lot to unpack. And so if you want to begin to turn there, uh, I feel like every week I need to do a certain amount of recap. I thought about not trying to do any recap. And as I was kind of going over my sermon, I thought, if somebody just shows up for the first time and I don't do any recap, they're going to be a little bit lost in what we're talking about, right? So I'll try to do the sweet and condensed version of the recap, okay? So um, Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob, also known as Israel. His brothers, he had, a, he had 11 brothers, and they hated him. Um, in fact, they wanted to kill him, but um, they got talked out of killing him and instead decided to sell him into slavery so they could get a profit out of the deal. And so they sell their brother into slavery. In, uh, he ends up in Egypt, and he goes through. There's a series of kind of ups and downs. He spends some time in prison where he's falsely accused of some stuff. And ultimately, um, he gets out of prison because he interprets a dream that Pharaoh has. Pharaoh has this dream, he doesn't know what it means, so Joseph, uh, who was quite the dreamer and had this gift to interpret dreams, um, he interprets Pharaoh's dream for him. And the dream essentially is that there's going to be seven years of, of plenty, seven years where the harvest is going to be really, really good, and then there's going to be seven years of extreme famine. So Joseph interprets the dream and he puts a plan together uh, to store up grain and, and all the harvest for the seven plentiful years so that... Uh, when the famine comes, there will be plenty uh, for, for them to live. This is a great plan. Pharaoh is really impressed with Joseph and ends up putting Joseph as second in command of all of Egypt, okay? So then we find ourselves in the seven years of famine. It says that the whole region, the whole area is under an extreme famine and people are coming from all over to get grain in Egypt because Joseph had a really good plan in place. And so we saw last week Joseph's brothers who think he's dead, they show up in Egypt to get grain. And uh, they come before Joseph, and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. And basically, instead of revealing who he is, ta-da, it's me, the brother you hated and tried to kill and sold into slavery. Uh, He decides, I'm going to test these. It's been 20 plus years. I'm going to test them a little bit, all right? I want to know if they've changed. I want to know if they're different. I want to know if any transformation has taken place in their heart and in their life in the last 20 plus years. And so last week we ended with chapter 42 and we basically said, it doesn't look like much change has taken place, right? It doesn't look like much change has taken place at all. And in fact, the father still shows unbelievable extreme favoritism, only now he shows it to Benjamin, the youngest son. And that favoritism is still affecting the family. We see the brothers kind of quibbling and squ- uh, with one another, and, and so there's no repentance, there's no confession. It just looks like at the end of chapter 42, things aren't any different. These guys are no different at all. Well, the good news, we're going to look at 43 and 44 today, and we are going to begin to see some change in the brothers. So before we get into that, I, ne- I want to I now back up and give you kind of a big picture of something. If you remember... God's plan in the Old Testament is to raise up a nation, a people, okay? He comes to a man named Abraham, and he says that through Abraham, there's going to be this this nation, and and through this nation, 
all people, all families of the earth are going to be blessed. The goal was that this particular people, they live, um, they live in such a way that they show who God really is. They show God's nature, God's character, God's attributes. They show the rest of the world that God's way is the right way. They show God's justice. They show God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. The plan was that God's chosen people would live this out and be a blessing to the rest of the world. But if you read the Old Testament, what you find is God's people don't really act the way God's people are supposed to act, right? They're kind of rebellious and, and there's, God keeps his end of the deal. God is faithful, but God's people, not so much. God's people struggle with sin repeatedly over and over and over and over again. Sound familiar? Right? Ultimately, God's faithful though, and, and through a particular line or lineage of his people, that's where Jesus comes. We get into the New Testament and Jesus, the Messiah, comes along. And ultimately, we know he goes to a cross and he dies on a cross for the sins of all the world. So God was faithful through this particular people, through this particular line and lineage would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And what I want to show you um, real quick before we get into Genesis 43 is in Matthew chapter 1, as, as, as the New Testament opens up, what you have is a genealogy. You have a genealogy of this Messiah, the line, the lineage of the Messiah. And I just want to kind of show you a snapshot of this because it's important to what we're going to talk about today. All right. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then verse 2 begins the, the lineage, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac. If you remember, Abraham actually had two sons, Ishmael with the oldest, and then Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. So historically, the oldest son would have been the favored son, the chosen son, the son of promise, the birthright, the blessing, typically goes with the oldest, but that's not the way God works here. Isaac was the son of promise. Well, then it says that Isaac was the father of Jacob. If you remember, Isaac also had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the oldest. Esau was the one that should have been the chosen one, right? That was not God's plan. It was through Jacob. And then it says, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. You remember Jacob, that's who we're talking about. That's Joseph's dad. He has 12 sons. But in the lineage, it doesn't talk about the other 12. It talks about Judah. Judah. This is what we're going to talk about today in Genesis 43 and 44. Judah, one of Joseph's brothers. He wasn't the oldest. Reuben was the oldest. Then Simeon, then Levi. But none of them were the chosen ones. Joseph and Benjamin were the favorite of their father. Joseph is presented in these later chapters of Genesis as like this guy that's unbelievable character, unbelievable integrity, unbelievably faithful. Not, it's not through Joseph, it's through Judah. Judah is the chosen one through whom Christ will come. In a lot of ways, the story of Joseph is the story also of the redemption of Judah. Judah is this brother who, quite honestly, up to this point in the story, has been nothing but selfish, sinful, rebellious, far from God. He's quite honestly uh, a wretched character. I mean, if you read through some earlier chapters and read about Judah, in fact, I'll give you a few examples. In chapter 37, when we started the story of Joseph, Judah was the brother that talked them into selling Joseph into slavery. Do you remember that? They were going to kill him, and Reuben's like, don't kill him. And Reuben runs off to do something, and Judah's like, let's sell him. We can make a profit, right? And all the other brothers are like, sounds good. And they, they sell their brother. But that was Judah's idea. 
We didn't cover chapter 38, but if you go back and look at 38, it gets even worse for our boy Judah. Judah is rebellious. He essentially runs away from the promised land, says, forget you, I'm leaving. And he, he runs off and marries a, um, a Canaanite pagan woman, which was a big no-no, right? You're not supposed to do that. That was breaking the covenant promise of God. Ultimately, I don't have time to recap the whole chapter. You can go read it. But he ends up sleeping with a prostitute who ends up being his daughter-in-law who tricked him. Have I mentioned how dysfunctional and messed up this family is, right? That's Judah. Judah, his whole story is a guy that pursued his own power, his own wealth, his own, you know, prosperity at every turn. Didn't matter who he had to step on or walk on, his own pleasure. Judah was this sinful, hard-hearted, calloused, I don't care about anybody else, I'm going to get mine. That's the picture we have of Judah. He would be the least likely you would expect the line and the lineage of the Savior, Messiah, Jesus to come, right? And the good news is we're going to look at Genesis 43 and 44, and we do begin to see some change in the brothers, and it starts with Judah. It starts with Judah. It starts with God doing a work in Judah's life. And so with all of that as kind of the backdrop, Genesis chapter 43, I'll read the first nine verses, right? It says, now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go and buy a little food. Now, do you remember last week? The brothers go um, Joseph sends them back with some grain, but he keeps Simeon there. He's trying to see the one of the tests is, will they come back to get their brother? So they go back home with the grain and they don't return immediately to get their brother. They basically use up, eat up all of the grain that was given to them. Verse three, but Judah said to him, we are starting to see in 43, Judah is going to speak up. Judah is going to become the leader. Judah is going to be the spokesperson for the sons of Israel, right? He says, uh, dad, The man solemnly warned us, saying that you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Remember, Joseph said, you got to bring Benjamin back. You don't bring Benjamin back, don't even bother coming back, okay? Verse 4, if you will send our brother with us, we'll go down and we'll buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Israel, or Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly and tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, well, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? And do you have another brother? It's almost like he knows a little bit about the family, right? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We'll arise and we'll go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. You begin to see a little bit of change here in Judah. Judah begins to speak up on behalf of the other brothers. Judah begins to take a little bit of a leadership role in the family. Judah, where before he was this selfish, self-centered, I don't care about anybody else, you begin to see glimpses of Judah going, hey, I'll be a pledge for his safety. I'll I'll watch over the boy. I'll take care of the boy. I will bring the boy back. Let my life kind of be on the line here. Judah begins to to put his brother ahead of himself. He he offers himself and pledges himself on on behalf of his brother. So basically, um, just to kind of recap a little bit of what happens next is they end up going back to Egypt. 
They have no choice. They, they're out of grain. They've, they've got to get some provisions, so they have to go back to Egypt. And so Jacob or Israel reluctantly says, okay, fine, take Benjamin, but you better bring him back, right? So they go back down to Egypt, and I, I got to imagine the whole way down there, they don't know what to expect. Like, what are they walking into? Remember when they, when they left, Joseph had a lot of their money put back in their sacks, and so they are thinking, man, this guy thinks we stole the money. This guy thinks we stole the grain. We didn't come back immediately for our brother. This could go very badly. They're literally going back to Egypt just hoping, hoping that they'll be able to return with all of their brothers and hoping they'll have some provisions. They end up getting to Egypt in chapter 43, and to their surprise and their amazement, they're welcomed into Joseph's household. And Joseph prepares this massive feast for them. He's like, come in and, and eat. There's some interesting things happening at the feast, however, like some clues they probably should have picked up on, right? Number one is Joseph sits them all in their birth order. How would he know that, right? That had to be odd. Like, how does he know their birth order? He sets all of them in their birth order. He begins to feed them food proportioned, right? He ends up giving Benjamin the largest portion of all of them. But it, it ends with them thinking, this is going to be awesome. They, they all get to go back home. He, he's going he's to sort of load them all up with grain and food, and all their brothers can go back home. And it seems like it's been a really great trip, right? This was awesome. It's, it worked out. Joseph has one more test, however, for his brothers. One more test. Chapter 44. Chapter 44, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house to fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So basically he's saying, take, give them their money back and give them all the food they can take back. Verse 2. But then he says, And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. Joseph is essentially going to set Benjamin up. So as soon as the morning uh, was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, up and follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination, and you have done evil in doing this? So when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sack we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Look at verse 9. They say, Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we will be my Lord's servants. So he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. So you see what's going on here. Joseph sends them with all their money and all their food and says, all right, y'all can go. But he, he hides his like favorite coffee mug, right? His little favorite silver coffee cup or whatever in the sack of Benjamin, the youngest. And he says, I want you to go after him and I want you to... I want you to find that cup that you put there in Benjamin's sack. We're going to see how they respond. So that's what happens. Basically, he, he goes after him. And of course, the men are all, they're like, what? We brought the money. Why would we take his cup? That makes no sense. We don't need another silver coffee mug. Like, we don't need this. Why would we do this? And then I love the drama of verse 12, right? In verse 12, it says, and he ser the servant searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Now, 
Listen, the servant knows whose sack the, the, the cup is in. He put it there, right? So he, he doesn't have them all unpack their sacks and go, all right, it's in Benjamin's. I know it, right? It's right there. No, no, no. The drama plays out. He starts with the old Reuben. Let me see your sack. He unpacks all of Reuben's stuff. Well, not there. All right, Simeon, you're next. Unpacks all. All right, Levi. All right, Judah. And on down the line, all the brothers, right? And I'm sure after every sack that the servant unpacked and the, and the, the cup was not in there, I'm sure they were like, told you. I told you. G- gaining confidence. I told you it wasn't in there. We would not do this. We would not do this. Ending with the youngest, verse, end of verse 12, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Worst possible outcome. It says, so they tore their clothes. That was a sign of mourning and grief. And every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Back to the city, back to Egypt to face Joseph. Here's where we begin to see some more change. Verse 14. We see Judah again be the one to speak up. Judah is the one to talk. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? For God has found out the guilt of of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. The rest of you can go. Well, then Judah went up to him and said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Do you see the subtle change taking place in Judah's heart? A couple things that I want to, I just want to point out here. First of all, in verse 16, what you see is Judah confessing the sin for himself and his brothers. Now, it's interesting that he confesses the sin because they know they didn't take the cup, right? They know they didn't take it. And yet you have Judah going, God has found out our guilt. What's he talking about? He knows they didn't take the cup, but he also knows that 20 plus years earlier, they've they did something far worse. They did something far worse. We talked about this a little bit last week, but do you see, I have no doubt in my mind that the sin of what they did to Joseph has been haunting them and staying with them and eating at them. When they lay awake at night, that's what they're thinking about, the guilt and the shame. They cannot shake it. That's what sin does, right? Sin doesn't stay put. Sin doesn't stay hidden. Sin doesn't just kind of stay off to the side so you can ignore it. Sin tends to haunt and it, it just bothers and it brings guilt and it brings a lot of shame. So even though he knows we didn't take the cup, he knows that what they did do was far worse and it's been eating at them and eating at them and eating at them. And finally in verse 16, Judah is saying, we are guilty. God has found out our guilt. Judah confesses the sin of his brothers. Here's what I would tell you is that true healing starts with confession and repentance. True healing in your life, true healing in this family, this dysfunctional, messed up, jacked up family, true healing cannot take place unless there is confession and repentance. And Judah is going to be the catalyst for the change in the family. Judah speaks up. Judah is the one that confesses. Now, what I find interesting and where we begin to see a little bit of change in the rest of the brothers is when Judah confesses all of their sin, none of the rest of them like interrupt him. Like you don't have somebody over there going, uh, actually... 
I didn't do that, right? Like, you don't have anybody else stepping up going, uh, ick, not me. Can I, can I just go? Can I let you? No. You don't have any of the brothers doing this, playing this game. No, they're all there and they're all going, yeah, we're all guilty, right? In addition, when Joseph, you know, Joseph tries to go, no, 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 you don't all need to stay and be my servants. Just the one who had the cup. So just Benjamin, Benjamin can stay. It would have been very easy for the brothers to just sell Benjamin out right here, wouldn't it? They sold their brother Joseph 20 plus years earlier for 20 pieces of silver because they hated him. It would have been easy for them to be like, man, the other favored son, Benjamin, here's an easy way to get rid of him. He stole the cup. Man, this is on, this is on Benjamin. We didn't do anything. This is on Benjamin. Benjamin can stay. Benjamin can be the servant. Forget about, let's, let's go home. It would have been easy for them to do that. But again, none of them leave. None of them are like, that sounds like a good plan. All in favor? Yep, let's do that. All right, let's all go, guys. Benjamin, have a good life, right? They, they could have easily done that, and they chose not to. We begin to see this change in them, in their hearts, where before they gladly got rid of their brother. Now they're willing to stay. They're willing to fight. They're confessing on behalf of their brother. We go a little bit further, and basically what happens is Judah... Again, you see it there in verse 18. He asks for a word with Joseph. Let me, let me beg, let me plead, let me talk with you. And so it's just Judah and Joseph now. He still doesn't know that Joseph is his brother. And he goes and he, he kind of unpacks for Joseph why it's so important they bring Benjamin back. He begins to unpack for him why this child is so important to my father and why we have got to bring him home. Verse, uh, in verse 20, I wanted to point this out. As he's, as he's unpacking this in verse 20, Judah, and he said uh, to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. He thinks Joseph is dead. And then he says, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. His father loves him. Here's what just kind of dawned on me this week as I was thinking about this. It seems like in some ways, Judah has sort of come to terms with and made peace with who his father is and his father's love for Benjamin. It, it, Judah it seems in some ways is acknowledging like, yeah, he is my father's favorite, right? But Judah is much more mature and much more secure now than he was before. Judah is, is at a place now where he's like, you know what? I realize who my father is. I realize that, he's, that, that Benjamin is his favorite, but I'm not going to let that destroy my life. I'm not going to let the opinion of my dad and what my dad thinks of me ruin my life. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to save my family. I'm going to be faithful. It doesn't matter what he thinks. Man, there's a huge lesson in this for you and for me, right? How many times do we let the opinions of others sort of dictate our life and our call, right? Man, we, we, I don't know if it's you know, a parent figure or a grandparent figure or just a teacher or a mentor or somebody. We let other people, outside voices, sort of dictate our life. And it's almost like Judah has finally come to a place where he's like, look, I'm going to do what's right. I don't, this, this is who my father is. This is what my father thinks. I've come to terms with that. But I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do what's right. You see this change take place in Judah. He's not going to allow the opinions of his father to dictate his life and eat at him and destroy him anymore. So Judah begins to tell Joseph why it's so important that we bring Benjamin back. And then here's kind of the, the, the end, verse 33 and 34. Verse, yeah, verse 33 and 34, it says, now therefore, this is Judah talking, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? 
I fear to see the evil that would find my father. In the end, Judah, of all the brothers, Judah, this sinful, wretched, hard-hearted, calloused guy from a few chapters earlier, is now at a place where he is willing to offer himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for his, for his brother and in a bigger picture for his whole family. You see that? You see what's going on here? Judah is going to willingly become the sacrifice and the substitute for someone that he loves. Does that sound familiar, right? When, again, through Judah's line and lineage, this all points to Jesus, right? Where Jesus is going to come along later. And Jesus, who, by the way, one of his nicknames, if you will, in Scripture, is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Jesus is going to willingly go to a cross where he's going to give up his life on a cross as a sacrifice and a substitute for those that he loves. Judah has come a long way from this wretched, sinful person to someone in Scripture that's actually pointing us and showing us the person and work of Jesus Christ. A couple verses I'll share with you really quick before we go. Over in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one dare even to die. But verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He takes our place. He becomes our substitute. He lived a sinless life. We don't. We, should, we deserve to die, but Jesus dies for us and pays our penalty. Over in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, I love this verse. Martin Luther called this verse the great exchange. It says, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus goes to a cross, and he gives up his life on a cross in our place for our sin. He becomes our sacrifice. He becomes our substitute, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So when I mentioned Joseph's story is in a lot of ways about the redemption of this man named Judah. Here's something that, that Judah's life tells us and reminds us of. Judah's life reminds us that people can change, right? People can change. You never know how the Holy Spirit of God is working on someone's heart and someone's life. It's a lesson for us not to write people off, not to assume the worst in everyone, to continue to pray for those people that are, that are wayward and that are sinful and the people that you think will never turn to God. There's countless stories in Scripture of people that do just that, that God gets a hold of their life and uses them in remarkable ways. Judah is not someone any of us would ever pick out and go, that guy's going to be a leader. That guy's going to be devoted to the Lord. That's definitely through his line is where the Savior, the Messiah is going to... No, we would have all been like, there's no way Judah's the guy. No way. And yet God gets a hold of his heart. And here's another thing that I hope you find encouraging this morning. Judah's story reminds us all that it doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. It doesn't matter what sin is in your past, what baggage you walk in here with. It doesn't matter the depravity of your heart and your soul and your mind that, that God, you're, you're not beyond the reach. You're not beyond the grace of God. You're not. There's no sin you've committed that Jesus hasn't died for. There's no sin you've committed that, that his sacrifice is not sufficient for. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because I don't know about you, man, but I've made some foolish decisions in my life. And I've 
done some really dumb things. And the fact that, that Jesus went to a cross and he gave up his life for me, for my foolishness and my sin, man, that's good news. The lion of the tribe of Judah dies and is our sacrifice and our substitute so that you and I can be free. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful today for stories um, like, like Judah. We're grateful today, Father, that we can see and learn so much through, through his life. Lord, I pray today for, for anyone that is here that may just feel like, man, they've, they've really blown it. They've just, they've made too many mistakes or they've made just mistake after mistake after mistake, foolish choice after foolish choice, God. I pray today that Judah's story would be an encouragement to them, that they are not beyond the grace and the hope of Jesus. God, would you remind all of us that you went to a cross and you gave up your life on that cross in our place for our sin, that just like Judah was willing to sacrifice himself and be a substitute for his brother, Jesus, that's exactly what you did for us. You went to a cross and you were willing to be the sacrifice and the substitute for sinful people like us. So God, I pray today like Judah that we would simply begin with just confession and repentance and we would allow you to do a work in our hearts, in our lives today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.